You're listening to Marcus Sahaba Online Radio Podcast. Yes, sir, people, that time of the evening where you join us on Wasail uh, Al-Elam Sadika, Truthful News. And uh, as uh, usual, uh, we have had one of the best in the country, nay, one of the best in the world, our very own uh, Professor Andre Duvonaga, who is a... A, a political science lecturer and he's in senior management uh, there in the Northwest uh, Universities and uh, yes uh, this uh, evening uh, or this evening inshallah we'll be talking about uh, many things and one of the topics uh, that we'll be discussing with the prof will be uh, the ANC has it lost credibility has it uh, the uh, you know the, the the listenership or has it the votership that will vote them and it seems as if they are a party that uh, you know what they have no leadership too and uh, good uh, evening, Prof, and tell me how you're doing. Uh, good evening, Shafat. I am fine, but as you mentioned, very interesting developments in our political environment. Yes, Prof, some, uh, the, the question will be posed to us, has it gone pear-shaped in South Africa? You know, we had uh, the uh, forefathers of the ANC, many, you know, were incarcerated. My take on it is, yes, Prof. Sorry, Jafat, we have, a, we have a sound problem. I think we must phone again. Uh, because I'm, I'm hearing about 50% of what you are saying. Okay, I'll, uh, how am I now, Prof? Am I much clearer? You're now clearer, but, but, but I think we need to restart the whole process. But you can put your question, I will continue. If it's clear now, if you can hear me, we can continue. Yeah, Prof, I can hear you loud and clear. Uh, perhaps the uh, per, first question to pose is, has uh, the ANC, number one, lost uh, uh, credibility? And number two, does the ANC have uh, the type of leadership that can lead it in the future? And number three, you know, the pundits or the experts are saying that uh, the next election, the ANC will still win 50% of the votes. Your thoughts on those uh, uh, three scenarios, uh, Prof? Uh, well, Shafat, to start with, with the first one, uh, definitely, President Cyril Ramaphosa has lost a lot of credibility. His so-called untouchable position, combined with what they called homophoria, the time directly after he became president of the country, that is gone and away. There's nothing left of that. In fact, uh, the general people, more and more, is seeing him as the absent president, the president that is not speaking, the guy that is away, that missed every opportunity possible to uh, lead the country and to save the country. That is the perception. Now, uh, I think Mr. Ramaphosa's style is he is working behind the scenes. And I still think that he's going to be a strong contender for the position of president of the ANC. But where I differ with some other analysts, I don't think that Mr. Ramaphosa is an automatic choice to become the president of the country. I think that uh, there's definitely going to be competition. And I won't be surprised if that competition is going to escalate into forms of conflict and patterns of instability. And my take on it is at the moment, there's a minimum of two, maybe three groups in the ANC. 
And the third one uh, is emerging over the last, let's say, year, year and a half, and it is focused on Paul Machatile. So you have the RET faction, and their leadership puts Willie McKeese in there, uh, Lindiwe Sazulu, and a number of others, Ais Machashule. Then you have the Ramaphosa line, where you put Ronald Ramola, Gwen Ramachopa, Gwedi Montash, and a few others. And then you have the Paul Machatile group. Uh, I think Didi Mabuza and Ronald Malloy, the current chairperson of the ANC in Northwest, is a lot closer to uh, Paul Machatili. And I heard rumors, Shafat, in my world, nothing is absolutely concrete and uh, uh, finalized. Uh, but I heard rumors that there's negotiations going on between the Paul Machatili group and the REP group. If that is the case, this is indicating high level of danger for Cyril Ramaphosa. And then from other sources, I am picking up that this may not be the end of the scandals. We may see more palace. So I am concerned about the position of Ramaphosa. I'm not saying that uh, automatically he's going to lose at the end, uh, win at the end of the year, or lose at the end of the year. I think this is a very 50-50 contest, and it can still be changed towards the national conference. But at this point in time, things are not looking that good for Ramaphosa. He's going down. The question about leadership. It is absolutely clear to me that the ANC on all levels has a lack of leadership. I cannot find strong leaders. And the best way to see that is the impact of an outsider in the name of Julius Malema on the structures of the ANC. To me, that is an indication that things are not going well. And I understand, and that's also info, that there is negotiations going on between the REP forces and Julius Malema's EFF. And I understand that people like Tokyo Sikwale, Matthews Poza, and others may be involved in that negotiations. So there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of intrigue, there's a lot of conspiracy going on, but there's a lack of leadership. About uh, the third question, that is uh, the, the uh, surveys. I have read about three surveys. One survey is giving the ANC 37, 38%. The other one is the Ipsos Markinor one, 42%. And then there's another one giving the ANC around 50%. If we look at the general local elections and you look at the national outcome of the local elections, the ANC receives 47%. And I believe this is a relative accurate scenario. What I can pick up is that the ANC support is definitely not picking up. It's rather going down. So I will be at the moment, if you ask me where I think the ANC support is, I think it is around 45%. But when we look at the end of the year, the end of the year, the national conference, 
can be a complete game changer. And it seems to me that there may be a catch-22 or maybe a catch-33, where you cannot accommodate all the interests of uh, individuals and that the sort of a breakaway, a type of thing, is possible. And it's interesting that Matthew Posner recently on a television interview referred to this. And to make the picture even more complicated, Shafat, is Tarun Beki's reappearance in what is his agenda? And now this guy, Julius Malema, came up with a very interesting statement. And that statement is saying that Tabumbeki is supported by no one else than the ex-state security guy, Arthur Fraser. Now, Shafat, that is the environment we are in. It's complex, it's dynamic, it is unpredictable, but it's not automatic that Ramaphosa will come out here on top. At best, it's a 50-50 thing. Now there's another dynamic you need to, to consider also. And I just had a conversation with a leading newspaper in South Africa literally moments ago, and the question to me is what will happen if senior politicians will be arrested their information is that uh, the National Prosecution Authority is going to act more than the Brian Molefi senior people. They are now taking on senior politicians. If that is happening, what dynamic will this have on the ANC and all these integrated related groups, which is in essence a mafia with a number of families? Conflicts. Yes, sir, Prof. Then we're thinking about, uh, you know, the Pala Pala issue and our president uh, has been questioned in parliament and he refuses to answer questions, Prof. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, many saying he's uh, digging uh, his hole deeper and deeper and uh, soon, uh, you know, there'll be no CR because uh, of his silence. He doesn't want to talk and he says, uh, according to his legal advisors, he shouldn't be talking. What's your views on that? He is really in a, in a very difficult situation between the devil and the deep ocean. If he is not talking, people are questioning him. They are questioning his legitimacy. And then we know he's not the guy that likes to talk. And when he's talking, he's talking from the back seat. He's not taking the front seat and saying, here am I. I'm going to take this way. I am... Uh, with the best of my insights, this is the way forward. I'm going to take this and walk the road. He's not that type of leader. He is negotiating behind the scenes. And this is leading to a lot of questions. And he is not defending himself. That is his problem. But on the other side, if he is taking this to the open politics, he's going to put a few targets on himself. And they are definitely going to attack him. So I think he's playing the most safer game, but it's coming at a huge political price. And I am concerned that he may pay the biggest price at the end. There's also another thinking about Ramaphosa. 
And that is the question, is he really interested in continuing in this position? If I have the financial support, he has a lifetime is 60, 70, 80 years, 90 years, if you are very, very, very lucky. Will you take the rest of your life trying to deal with solutions to this huge problems? Or will you like enjoy your life somewhere else? And some people are saying they believe if the pressure is too high, Ramaphosa will leave. That's not what I am saying, but I have heard that perspective in the academic debate about the future of Sir Ramaphosa. There's another, the Minister of uh, you know Justice, uh, Ronald uh, 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 Ramola. I mean, he's making a, a statement, and he says, uh, if you look at Julius Malema, he's uh, flip-flopping. One moment he says Paul Mashitile is, you know, not good. And next moment he's backing him. And he says, uh, you know, this is not right for the country. But uh, many have said that uh, Ronald uh, 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 Lamola, he, he wants to, he has aspirations of becoming the next uh, vice president of the country. Your thoughts on that, Prof? Yes, uh, Shafat, on the, on the Ramaphosa slide, he may be competitive for the position of deputy president. And we know that he is a solid guy. He's a relatively quiet guy. I think he has a bit more integrity than what I have seen in other portfolios in cabinet at the moment. But the problem, and we have seen that with that interplay between him and Julius Malema, he doesn't have the dynamism and the, 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 the charisma to deal with Julius Malema. He'd like to put a gentleman on the street and ask him to, to fight with a street fighter. That's an unequal game. And I cannot see Ronald Lamola winning that game. I think this game is going to be dirty. And when the game is dirty, there's no one better to fight the game than Julius Malema. The two guys, Ronald Lamola is by far the better one. But I think for Ramaphosa to survive, he would have to make huge compromises on the level of deputy. And I don't think Ronald Lamola is fitting the power base that well. I think it will be better to go with people like, for example, Paul Machetile, or maybe even Didi Mabuza, or one of these other influential characters that can bring support to the conference. I am not reading Ronald Lamola in that position, although I also have heard his name uh, in some quarters. But I think when it comes to the position of deputy, there are some analysts arguing that let's take the point that Ramaphosa is going to make it. And then the huge fight is on for deputy president. And we know that ANC is making compromises. That is why Julius is shifting his power base. Look at what Supramuamopelu did with the provincial conference here in Northwest. He should have stand as a candidate for uh, the chairperson of the ANC Northwest. But when he came to, to, the, to the day, he saw he had limited support and he gave his support to who he believed is the strongest candidate, Lono Molloy, and he repositioned himself in that line. The same happened 
with uh, the premier, the previous premier of KZN, uh, Zigalala. He repositioned himself to a position of MEC. So we are getting today, they are standing here. Tomorrow, they are connected to someone else. I think this dynamism is going to be very prominent. And I cannot see that Ronald Lamola will be among the top six. I may be wrong. At this moment, it is an open horse race in many ways, but I can't see Ronald Lamola there in terms of seniority, in terms of his support base competing to some with some of the other leaders. Yes, Prof, then you get uh, many of these ANC, uh, you know, the newly elected uh, leaders in the KZN, and uh, it's also believed in KZN that... Uh, over three to four hundred uh, uh, councillors that I elected uh, can't even read and write up, Prof. I don't know how they got into uh, that position, but it's really frightening. But uh, many of them are from the RET group. Uh, groups are really going and seeing uh, Jacob Zuma all the time. And uh, he, he sees that relevant uh, for them to go and uh, touch base and get advice. Uh, they call him the wise one. Is he really that wise, uh, Prof? Uh, Shafat, I don't think he is that wise, but he is without any doubt that dangerous. And he can disrupt South African politics. And we have seen that in a way uh, last year, July, with the violence in uh, in Phoenix and going up here to the area of the East Rand and so on. So Shafat, he is a very dangerous person. Without any doubt, he is mobilizing. Uh, I understand that he is still in the process of mobilizing. Uh, at the grassroots level, he has support. About your comment that people can't read and write, Yes, you're absolutely right, sir, but uh, we have a serious problem with the quality of the average politician in South Africa. They do not have an understanding of the world. They do not have the ability to take decisions in a proper way. In some way, as you mentioned, they cannot even re-order. But that is not to say that they cannot be elected. You can even be elected if you are corrupt. And that is saying something about the constituency in South Africa. Because in a way, the people in South Africa should take the responsibility because they were responsible for electing these people. That is what democracy is all about. The people have rights. But the people must exercise responsibility as well. The first is there. All people are taking up their rights. But when it comes to responsibility, everyone is gone. They are not even prepared to take decisions. So this is a serious problem, not a problem that is unique in South Africa, but what is without any doubt a problem that you cannot accommodate within a country that is becoming more and more technologically sophisticated. And Prof, what is more worrying is, uh, you know, we talk about uh, these are councillors that are being uh, compromised that cannot read and write. What about those that are being employed at uh, municipal levels? Those at the, you know, when you go and pay your electricity bills or, you know, you go to the police station and you got people incompetent. I mean, they cannot comprehend, um, you know, basic English. 
and uh, this is why we're finding so much of problems. And in order to, uh, you know, hide uh, the ignorance, they uh, show you attitude. I mean, uh, there is a chip on the shoulder, so they play the aggression game just to show, you know what, I'm in power. And this is one of the reasons why we're having this type of uh, scenario in South Africa. Perhaps your thoughts. Yes, of course, there's no doubt that we have a huge number of incompetent people. And in a way, there is no way that this system can survive or maintain existing levels of service to the community. It will be going down all the time and all the time. And we have seen that downward spiral over the past years, even increasing in speed. So this is really a concern. What is happening is a very interesting thing. And that is that other groupings from civil society, from the private sector, however you would like to define them, they are taking over the role of the state. Look at the number of private security institutions. Look at private education institutions. People that are providing us with clean water. You know, in my days when I was a child, we drank water from the tap straight forward and we play rugby or whatever we did. And it, it was a normal pattern with all the children uh, at school. Now you cannot touch water, you need to get it. The provision of electricity, the maintenance of infrastructure. Many people are talking about a hybrid state and some people are already talking about the form of a parallel state that is developing because the current state is falling apart, the so-called failing state phenomenon. Absolutely, Prof. And as you said, the states are falling apart. You know, who does the, I mean, you need to check people up that are coming into uh, this position of power. I don't know how the IEC, how do they check up, uh, uh, you know, uh, these candidates and uh, be allowing something that has uh, uh, obviously led uh, to the, uh, you know, uh, to the implosion of uh, all uh, the fabrics of, of our society. And especially, you know, when you come to civic work and or uh, the municipalities and government levels are prof. We've been heavily, heavily compromised. How can you put a thing like this right? You know, you as an educator at the highest level, what would you do, prof? Well, uh, Shafat, uh, to start with, the IEC, the Independent Electoral Commission, do not have any jurisdiction about the specific candidates. They are asking for lists and the parties are responsible for the composition of these lists. There are certain requirements for people to attend uh, parliament and uh, that type of thing. So there will be a minimum uh, qualification. But I remember about 10, 15 years ago, I have seen a statistic about people in parliament in South Africa arguing that more than 50% of them has criminal records. So, uh, you have a serious problem. You touch on the question of academic qualifications. Interestingly, I have heard, and it came from the Ramaphosa environment, that people are saying we must depoliticize local government. In other words, we need to get administrators 
to deal with this and not involving any politics. Now, that can be a good thing in some way. We are uh, getting a cure for the problem you refer to. But the other problem is, then you are creator and an administrator and his group as a sort of a politician, as a strong man, as a hit man. And then you have other problems. Yeah, absolutely, Prof. As you said, you have uh, other problems coming through. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe we even can talk about uh, the other things uh, that are coming through in this country. We looked at COPE, uh, Prof., where there was uh, the scenario where Taylor Lakota, he was uh, ready for the interview. And uh, suddenly, Prof., uh, you know, uh, there was this fisty cups in, uh, in front of him. And it already looked like uh, Taylor Lakota was uh, really terrified. Your thoughts on that, Prof.? Yes, I'll be, I managed to get Prof back. And Prof, talking about uh, Taylor Lakota and the whole media waiting there, you know, to get an interview from him. And then certain individuals came in and the fisticuffs started. And it was already an unsavory incident, in, uh, you know, especially in, such a, uh, in front of such a senior uh, citizen, uh, Prof. Your thoughts on uh, what happened at the uh, COPE fiasco? Well, Shafat, I think it must have been a feeling of deja vu for Moussia Lakota because more or less the same type of aggression was seen during the Polokwane conference within the ANC against him. At that point in time, he had a senior position. I don't think he was secretary general or something like that. And there was strong reaction. Now within his own party, the same happened. And I must say from the beginning, Shafat and I had many, many presentations before the leadership of COPE. If it's not five, it may be as many as 10 over all the years. And because a lot of my students was part of the COPE process at that point that they asked me to make presentations. From the beginning, there were conflict in that party. It seems as if COPE had the DNA of the ANC but were in a weaker position to manage themselves. Initially, the fight between Lakota and Mbisima Shaloa was at the first front of the party. At one point in time, the party had, I think it was tens of millions of rands, uh, fees they need to pay for attorneys for that internal fight. The party couldn't afford it. And then the party lost momentum from a very strong party initially uh, commanding the majority of opposition roles in provinces at that point. It went down to a party that has two people in parliament at the moment. And Shafat, there are so many interest people who would like to, to have positions. And I think we have seen the end of COPE as a political party. I think the future COPE will remind us of what we have at the moment uh, with groups like the PAC and Azopu. Prof, the question to pose is why the old men of, of these parties, uh, the senior citizens, uh, they didn't want to or don't want to go. I mean, even if you look at Bantu Holomisa, I mean, he's a sell-by-date. Uh, Busilezi is trying to make uh, something happen. I mean, is he allowed... Uh, um, someone more younger than him to come through. But uh, generally, the old men of the parties, they like to go or die with the boots on. Uh, Prof, your thoughts? The phenomenon, that is a phenomenon of politics. 
that older people are keeping positions. And specifically in the ANC, you have these picking orders. And when you came out on top, you try your utmost to keep that position. Uh, and I think it's a thing of, there are so many people interested in that positions and the competition is so tough. And you are in this position and you have put other people into positions, cadres, and the cadres are relying on you. Older people, specifically older men, but that is not a South African phenomenon. That is a phenomenon that uh, we will find throughout the world. Maybe in some parts of Scandinavia there will be a bit uh, different. I think there were recent tendencies of younger leadership in Canada and France with Macron and so on. So I think, generally speaking, it is uh, the politics of the elderly and they are still prominent and I cannot see that changing very easily. Prof, you look at the apathy amongst uh, youngsters and uh, it seems as if uh, they don't want to get into politics. If you look at the ANC Youth League, it's uh, no more powerful. I don't know about uh, the other, uh, you know, Freedom Front Plus, how their youth leagues are moving on or DA. We don't hear much of uh, these uh, youth league coming to the fore. It seems as as if there is apathy amongst youngsters to get into politics because uh, they quite literally, they are fed up uh, with uh, what's going on, Prof. So what the biggest tendency since we start with January elections in South Africa post-94 is the tendency of political apathy. Now, in a way, I can understand it when it is the minority groups and they said there's nothing we can do about the situation, etc., etc. But the interesting fact is it seems as if this is an increasing tendency among black people. And I'm hearing more and more about black people that want to leave the country. Already in the white community, we know that a huge number of people already have left the country and are still leaving the country. And uh, these people are sometimes some of the best skilled people we have. So it's a huge loss. And that tendency is also spreading to your black communities. And I think it has a lot to do with the absolute disaster we have in South Africa with the government and governance of the ANC. And the country that is falling apart, people that are losing hope, and I can understand that people will look for greener pastures. We saw what happened in in Europe, people fleeing the African continent in strange ways, trying to end up in Western Europe as an outcome of this. And if we just think about one demographic figure, that the population in Africa will increase in the next, I think it is 15, about 15 years, it will increase with about 1 billion people. Where will these people go? If they are not going north to Western Europe, they will go south to South Africa. Shafat, and this is going to be a huge, probably, uh, situation that will be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to manage. Then you look at the government and you look at the Dudula movement, uh, Prof. Uh, they moved into hospitals now, uh, you know, really asking uh, patients uh, for their uh, identity and whether you're a foreigner or not, and uh, uh, demanding that uh, treatment uh, should be giving, uh, given firstly to South Africans and so forth. And uh, many have said the government 
He's not doing enough uh, to stop uh, this, uh, this uh, type of madness from going on. Is there a sinister, you know, motive behind the whole thing? And, uh, Prof, uh, perhaps an important question to ask uh, these foreigners, are they, you know, impacting positively or negatively in the, you know, South African landscape? So far to start with, I think there is political capital for groups fighting foreigners, creating in foreigners an enemy and gaining political capital on that basis. And I think this is without any doubt happening. But if we look at the situation, where is the main problem? It is illegal immigrants coming to South Africa. We cannot safeguard the borders of South Africa. That is the main problem. It's about territorial integrity, which we do not have anymore. Now these people are ending up, and according to one of my students, we are talking about 5 million people that are illegally in South Africa. And yes, these people are going to need services. They are in a way contributing to the economy, but they are also contributing to violence. They are contributing to criminal activities, etc. So I think when you come to the point where you must access their contribution, I think it is both positive and negative. But my honest take is I think it is probably a bit more negative than positive. But that doesn't give the people the right to act against these people on individual basis, attacking them in the streets, plundering their shops, etc., etc. That type of looting is just not acceptable to me. That is becoming more and more an environment where we look at mob violence, xenophobic tendency, tendencies, vigilantism. And to me, this again is an indication of the legal system and the system of policing that is falling apart. And that is at the core of any state. So to me, that is not a fight in a hospital. It is a problem of the state. State. Absolutely, Prof. And uh, you know, we talk about the borders of borders of South Africa. I, you know, I want to know from you, Prof. Uh, you know, any other country in Africa would they tolerate such a situation where you know over five million people just cross your borders, open up business uh, like wherever they want to, and to do whatever they can? And plus, uh, the United Nations, you know, the refugee thing. I believe they give each one a. Uh, I'm not too sure, was it $100 a month or something for that, and or maybe more. But uh, South Africa really was uh, not only a target uh, from uh, the, the people of Africa, or uh, people from the subcontinent and the other parts of the world got onto the bandwagon and came here like in a frenzy. Prof, your thoughts? Well, Shafat, yes, it depends on the historical context you are using this. I think some people will argue uh, that they can come to South Africa now if it was the right of the white settlers to came back when Jan van Riebeek arrived. So I think it's going to be controversial in terms of historical timelines. But generally speaking, the core task of a state is to provide order, stability, safety, and security to its people. And that people are the 
the citizens. And if you are a citizen of a country, you have certain rights, but you also have certain responsibilities. At the moment, we are busy destroying the state. And the reason why there's 5 million people in South Africa illegally is because the economies north of us in many ways are dysfunctional and in other ways people are allowed by civil servants and politicians to enter this country on an illegal basis. So again, it's a problem with the state as state. And at the end of the day, what is happening, me and you become responsible for our own safety and our own security. And at the end of the day, if you are in a black community, you become dependent on a warlord and the whole state system is falling apart. And that is what we call the weak state and in some cases, the failed state. Yeah, Prof, I'm thinking aloud here, you know, uh, Muammar Gaddafi called uh, for the United States of Africa and he said, you know what, I'll be its first uh, president and he gave a blueprint and so forth. But you're you're looking at the United States of America and it seems uh, like a country, uh, you know, the states are divided where Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden supporters, uh, you know, are at loggerheads and uh, when uh, Donald Trump's, uh, you know, house uh, was invaded by the FBI, uh, many said, you know what, this can lead to civil war in America because that man, Trump, has a lot of supporters. But before you answer that question, Prof, I want to know from you, uh, would a, you know, United States of Africa work out or is it just another dream like Cyril Ramaphosa's dream, Prof? Well, Shafat, he's not the only person with that dream. Uh, that dream came from the period of decolonization with the Pan-Africanism, Kwame Nkrumah, mm. Julius Nyerere, and all these people. And uh, our own previous president, Thabo Mbeki, also talked about the African Renaissance. And only a few days ago, I have listened to the newly elected leader of the Pan-Africanist Congress, and he is talking about Africa for the Africans without any borders, where you can move wherever you would like to move, etc., etc. So that ideal or that myth is still prominent in certain environments. But Shafat, it cannot work. What is interesting was that post-colonial Africa decided to keep the colonial borders. The Congress of Berlin of 1884 and that rules when uh, European states divided the African countries on some ways and they use natural borders, not the position of uh, the populations and their interest. But to change this is going to be impossible. I can only see more instability in Africa if we change the current pattern of state. But what is also true is that the existing states at best is weak states. If you take it broader, it's interesting to me that I receive a figure when I did some research, and that was in 1999, about the future of the nation state. At that point in time, after the Second World War, there was something like 55 political entities. When I was a student in the 1980s, we talk about 168 nation states. At the moment, there are more than 200 
nation states. So the number of states are constantly increasing. Think about the disintegration of the Soviet Union as one example. But what is also prominent of the post-industrial era is that other entities, not states, are taking over political roles. And in some way, the world is looking more and more to the period before the Peace Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, when we had diverse and complex political institutions governing the world. So my take on it is that the patterns that we are seeing in Africa is not completely unique to Africa. It is a phenomenon that is playing itself out in other parts of the world as well. And people are predicting that we are going to see this in large countries as well. Uh, in You talk about the U.S. where there was at one point in time an argument that places like Texas and so on would like to leave the United States of America and the form of balkanization. The same I have heard about Mexico and Russia and China and Brazil, all your big states. And at the same time, we have seen that Chinese populations are occupying many states in Africa. So there are major changes going on. And I think with a population that is growing the way it is growing, we must expect the reality that people will relocate in some way and that we will see a lot of conflict, violence, and that borders are not going to be as strong as it was during especially the time of the Cold War. Yeah, Prof, we're talking about, you know, when uh, Jacob Zuma was uh, sent uh, to jail, uh, you know, when, uh, for, 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 the, uh, for, for not uh, being a Zondo commission and uh, for, for disobeying coming to them uh, and so forth. Uh, there was an insurrection. Now with uh, Donald Trump, you know, I want to see what if there is a similarity. If uh, Donald Trump, you know, uh, the, maybe they want to have a Trump-top charges. And if something like that happens to Donald Trump, will the Americans... Uh, revolt like how you know some of the south africans did but they won't be looting and so forth i don't know prof but what's your thoughts well uh, Shafat, i think uh, the, the american political processes are a lot more institutionalized to use the words of samuel Anding, that established stability in a certain environment and uh, i think there will definitely be mobilization in an American context, it may manifest on a party level. Quite interesting within the Republican Party, uh, some people that opposed Donald Trump within the Senate or the House of Representatives were axed by the huge influence of Donald Trump. So I think Trump is still a very influential figure in the United States among the conservatives. And that is not to say that he is the best candidate for president. I'm just reflecting on uh, his support base. But I don't think the Americans will let something develop the way we have seen the conflict in KZN last year. Out of control, 300 people plus killed, uh, 50 billions damaged, 
that type of thing, uh, where the army and the police were involved on the side of the looters, that type of thing, an insurrection coming from within the ANC against the ANC. I don't think that is possible in America. However, it will be very interesting to see what the FBI is going to do about Trump, what will the findings be, and what will the outcome be of all of this, because I think it can have a very negative outcome, but that is the judiciary in the US. At least the judiciary is independent and strong in the United States of America. We cannot say the same about South Africa. Yeah, Prof, uh, that, uh, you find, uh, you know, the as you said, that uh, the judiciary in America is strong. And uh, when you look at uh, America questioning the South African government on uh, the Ukrainian uh, you know why you, uh, uh, yeah, you 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 don't make it. You are not vociferous about uh, being with uh, Ukraine, uh, but uh, you're showing a lot of leaning towards uh, Russia. In in many sense, you're visiting Russia and so forth. And the uh, uh, the retort from the South African government is, uh, you know, you don't dictate to us what to do. But uh, Prof, you know, America acts very viciously if you're not with them and if you're against them. Uh, you know, any repercussions? Uh, uh, do you see them? Uh, you know, implementing any uh, plans to, uh, you know, to, uh, give South, South Africa a lesson, like how they did uh, for Imran Khan, you know, when he visited Russia and, uh, you know, showed leanings of uh, buying uh, from uh, Russia, Russian oil and gas. Uh, Prof, your thoughts? Well, uh, Shafat, uh, what we can say is that politics is not working with ideals and norms and goodwill and friendship. Rather, politics is about hard quantitative interests, which you can measure in some way. And yes, sir, Lukolo, we seem to have uh, lost uh, Professor there. Uh, yeah, let's make plan B. And uh, perhaps yeah, there's a clip that we had on uh, George Galloway talking about uh, uh, oh, ghost accounts and uh, many other things there. So uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, we could put that on, uh, Lukolo. Let's go for it. not affiliated to anybody media. I'm not even getting any wages. And therefore the answer would have to be no. And when the second question was, well, why have you still got Russian state-affiliated media attached to his every tweet, whether it's about Manchester United, the birth of a granddaughter, the beauty of nature, or about politics, why do you stamp it Russian state-affiliated media? And as a result of that stamp, why have you ensured that only 10 to 12 percent of his 441,000 followers ever see any of his tweets? Collapse of third party. Twitter better settle with me out of court and quickly because I'm amassing quite a dossier here about the owners of Twitter including the Saudi royal family, about the Elon Musk affair, about the level of ghost accounts being boasted by Twitter, about the number of bots, about the foreign government penetration of your company, where you're dancing to the tune of governments like the Saudi Arabian government, like the Israeli government, like the Indian government, all three governments having been found, caught, 
suborning your officials. I'll tell you what, Twitter, if I was you, I'd settle with me handsomely very, very soon. Or I'm going to enjoy my day in court with you. That, I promise. I got to a time when you had to wait for the history books to vindicate you. Now, in the speed of media in this era, and the number of clever people that we have on our side means that you get vindicated in your own lifetime. You get vindicated when you still look roughly the same in the picture as you did when you made the initial revelation. If I wrote as I might, another autobiography. My first one was called I'm Not the Only One. This one would be, I was right about everything. I was right about virtually everything, certainly everything important. And I lived to see that proved. Thanks to God, of course, but thanks to those of you who loyally supported me throughout. Thanks, Cameron, for that. I'll never cross a picket line, whatever it's about. Smuggling child brides for ISIS in Syria. Do the Canadian people care about this? I'm asking that. Let's see what else there is. This man, I don't say his name, I refuse to say his name, who murdered all these children in the Manchester arena, was a ticking time bomb constructed years before by the British government, by the government of Gordon Brown and the government of Theresa May, both of them, constructed a terrorist cell in, in Manchester, a city extremely close to my heart, where some of my children live. This terrorist cell was assembled there by the British state. They imagined that all the explosions would happen in Libya. It just so happened that once they got the taste for blood in Libya, it didn't satisfy them. And they came back to Manchester and took some of our children's blood. That's why I'm saying, James. Catholic in good standing and cannot be a Freemason. Next, he needed that lesson in the history of British imperialism. I'm deeply grateful to you for pointing out to me who spent the last 55 years crying against, raging against the crimes of British imperialism. Thank you. You've set me straight after all this time at this advanced age. I'm now the wiser, thanks to you. American ruling elite, I'd want to bring down Biden too, because even if the Republican Party fielded Yogi Bear in 2024, they'll beat Joe Biden. Problem actually is they'll also beat Kamala Harris. Yogi Bear and Boo Boo, standing for the Republicans, would defeat Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So it may be that the story is emerging. But if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably Joe Biden showering inappropriately. It's me already. So 
Gayatri, I'm sure, will take note of that name and we'll try and follow that up. 2020, on any mention of what was on Hunter Biden's own laptop. Pictures of himself were banned. And we know now from one of the people who banned them. An American journalist and editor banned them. He openly admitted on television. Biden from sacked from his job because he wouldn't stop investigating Burisma, the company that paid Hunter Biden $50,000 a month for not working for them, just sitting on their board. You thought all that was bad. Well, you've not read Joe Biden's daughters. The leader of your free world. Is this the man that you're following over the cliff, destroying your own economy so that he can have a proxy fight with Russia? Is that the Joe Biden that you're following? If you are, if you do, there's really not much I can do for you. If you're not, you need to tell your neighbors. You need to tell your friends, your workmates. You need to tell everybody that you are in touch with, that the United States of America is run by a degenerate crime family. The Biden crime family, who may indeed have been engaged in crime. United States of America, I just finished a magnificent HBO series called We Own This City, starring the incomparable, brilliant actor who surely will win the Best Supporting Actor Award for television in this coming week. Sure, exploiting, terrorizing, that's what the plainclothes police in Baltimore did to the people of Baltimore. And it's exactly what the people of the world are now suffering from the United States, its armies, its government, and perhaps above all, its CIA, the new darlings of American liberals and progressives. This is the Galloway Show. So what we yes, I hope and pray that uh, you really enjoy the program, and I must thank uh, Lucano for lovely engineering, and uh, keep it locked on to Marcus Sahaba for beautiful programming and a lot of knowledge coming through from the team. And I till we meet you again, we bid you assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.